And one of the things that may value is that he takes into account my long-run interest and not just doing something in the short-run form. And finally, in the bedroom, was, was there a question there or that was the statement? <laughs> well, I, well, the question is, you're saying that it's short-sighted. And I'm saying that there are mechanisms that can solve that in the same way. And there's a lot of empirical work that's been done. Maybe these are the types of empirical work you don't approve of, but there's a lot of empirical work that indicates that, in fact, that type of cheating problem may be solved a lot in political markets that you're concerned about. Okay, can I just turn that for a moment? Don't want to comment briefly on this. Okay, well, first of all, the patents. Uh, I didn't mention patents in my talk, but uh, it's, as a government, we have a monopoly. If governments, if companies are competing for a government grant of monopoly, that's what well, that's rent seeking, isn't it? I, I don't have any disagreement with that. Uh, but I don't know why that was part of the question, because I didn't really mention patents in my uh, discussion of rent seeking at the end there. So, uh, we mentioned innovation, and it doesn't have to be it doesn't necessarily have to be a patent, but yeah. if there's some gain to being the first one in the market or something to discover something that's yeah. not there, then firms are going to raise to be that first one, and how much are they going to spend there? They're going to anticipate the gains. Really. If, well, you know, if you're talking about gains that uh, a government grant a monopoly through a patent, but if, if you look at the market as a dynamic process, uh, uh, like the Austrians do, uh, for, for example, much better than any other school of thought. That's how we. Uh, that's how we get these innovations. It's a process of competition among firms, and, uh, and the end result is there's a winner who produces the best product temporarily, any anyway. And uh, I don't see a dissipation of all of all consumer surplus being a result of that sort of thing, like there is if there's a government grant of monopoly rights. Uh, yeah, that happens. That's what the, the rent seeking literature says. So. Uh, uh, that's what I would have to say about that. I, I, I didn't even mention that. But, but on the, and the second thing you said, uh, uh, yeah, it's possible for governments to uh, to become a little more efficient in different ways. I know there's a literature on it. But if you just take the U.S. example, um, uh, I think the statistic on incumbent re-election rates is something was, well, I think it was 97.5% or something like that you know, in the 04 election. And as you know, it's been in the 90, 95% range for decades with one or two uh, counterexamples like uh, 94, yeah, 94, I guess. But uh, it, it hardly sounds like a competitive market to see uh, 90 or 95% of all members of the US Congress re-elected routinely every single time. And more often than not, 98% or 99% uh, re-elected. What, what market is like that? The same firms or the market leaders for 40 or 50 years uh, without any challenges to their, to their authority. Uh, as you know, even uh, an American congressman, you know, almost nothing will want to see an American congressman as long as he's good at dishing out uh, pork. To, uh, Barney Frank, the congressman from uh, Massachusetts, even the front page of the Washington Post with his boyfriend running a male prostitution ring from the basement of his house, and he's been reelected about 10 times since that happened. And so, and so there's nothing that can see that a U.S. congressman who doesn't want to be unseated. That hardly sounds competitive to me, uh, you know, as far as long-term, uh, you know, long-term assignments, I don't see it. Paul, anybody Question to Sean Kapp. Um, does uh, uh, Professor from 
made up or made up this, uh, this economic system that he described to so ancient times. Uh, does this uh, economic system has been uh, seen to uh, happen anywhere else? In, in, you know, has there been any empirical data that would uh, back this up? For example, like maybe some tribal in tribal uh, systems. Uh, this one question. I mean, has it ever existed? Has ever anybody ever seen it exist? And the second question is. Is how does uh, archaeological data uh, affect uh, this uh, debate? For example, you can go here uh, in Podroma to the castle, there is an underwater archaeology museum, and you can see a, a merchant vessel, 3,600 years old, full of different cargo and, and very, very specific cargo, for example, bronze table tables, which are basically you know, a commodity, and, and it's very hard to imagine that you know, somebody just, some Phoenician just felt a, a duty. You know, taken from uh, from uh, current uh, Palestine or uh, Israel to uh, to Greece or Turkey. You know, it's, it's rather you know it makes much more sense that that they wanted to make money, some money off of it. Uh, you know, trading with other people. So these are the two questions. Okay, uh, there is a gigantic literature on this. There is a very big literature on this, and um, there are claims by anthropologists like Malinowski and so on that here and there. Tribal groups which um, do not know market behavior, in which reciprocity and redistribution are the um, main forms of economic um, activity. However, every time somebody looks at this evidence, it turns out that what you have is some kind of market economy. And so uh, when you're faced with these claims, you acquire often greater. For the past 200 years, Stanley economic theory has explained our actions. When you look, when somebody like Morris Silver looks in detail at the ancient Near East, uh, he, he will say that Polanyi has systematically misinterpreted the evidence. And, and so, um, my own approach is that whenever you look, whenever I'm told that there is an African tribe uh, which practices uh, reciprocity and redistribution, I dismiss that with hand. Now, the archaeological evidence. Um, Polani and Finley never denied that there was some kind of market activity, but they said that this was peripheral and that uh, the main mode of economic uh, organization was reciprocity and redistribution. Um, however, Dietrich-Flosky uh, some years ago noticed that in South America, um, she looked at the distribution of Flint's tools, and she noticed the further away you get from the main um, production centers for Flint's tools, the bigger the ratio of cutting size to um, Flint becomes. And you would expect that that is rational market activity when you have very high transport costs. Um, you will try to minimize on the amount of unnecessary things you're using. And so the archaeological evidence does suggest that uh, the people making these things, the people carrying them, were they were rational economic agents. Um, I think Swift said that there is nothing so absurd that somebody somewhere does not argue for it. And this entire line of argument is absurd. But as I said, there's a, there's a gigantic literature. I haven't been through all of it because there is just so much of it. I don't want to go through all of it. 
it's simply necessary to show that uh, standard economic theory explains our actions, has done so by general agreement for 200 years. Whenever you look in detail at a past age or uh, a primitive tribe, it turns out that they, that they have marked economies of one kind or another. And as soon as reject all of these arguments of reciprocity and redistribution as social fantasies. Um, Mike? Thank you very much. Um, yeah, sure. I, I thought it was an interesting talk because um, I, uh, I think, you know, yeah, the evidence is obviously that uh, there, there was certainly some kind of market uh, activity. Albeit, when you visit the Museum of um, Antique Rome in, uh, in, in Rome, and you see this huge panel, which is about the size of the wall behind you, which uh, comes from the Roman Forum, the Forum in Rome, where you have all the prices of goods that are set in stone, literally. In other words, my merchants will only sell at that price. And, uh, but what I find interesting, and I uh, like your opinion on this, is that when you read ancient literature, till about, say, Shakespeare's time and, and so on, the girl never marries a merchant. The girl marries a nobleman, a knight, and so on. And I think it was the ideology of the time to displace the merchant to the lower ring of the uh, sort of social hierarchy. And uh, the, uh, you know, probably the difference between a society of status and a society of contract and the ideology of the nobleman and so on was that we are the predators and we are proud to be the predators, warriors, or priests, you know, in the Tunisian classical definition of, you know, priests, warriors, and producers. Producers were at the bottom of society. And since more or less the early Enlightenment, what you have is the merchant becoming the um, uh, sort of good person in society living through exchange and contract rather than living for war and, and plunder. And probably what these intellectuals that you know you've mentioned, Polani and uh and so on, they are really the real guard defending the old status, the old ideology. And um, I think it is important to show this in terms of you know how society sort of uh, has promoted the values of the merchant through a very long process that goes, you know, diminution of slavery and things like that. It's all part of this process. And uh, the noble uh, actually becomes ignoble in its way of life and, and, and so on. Yeah. Well, um, when, I, when I say that um, every ancient society that I've looked at has been a martial society, yeah. I'm not saying that these have been military martial societies. Mm. Ancient ruling classes, much more so even the modern ruling classes, were systematically parasitic. Um, all I'm saying is that they had to be parasitic on something, and it was a market economy. Now, the evidence of price fixing is actually evidence in favor of market economies. If you set a table of maximum prices and you uh, attach punishments to violation of, of those maximum prices, that is very good evidence that you have a market economy in which prices are formed by the forces of supply and demand. 
it's just that the authorities do not like the prices that have come about. Mm. Uh, so the dealings of Diocletian, the various um, fixed prices we saw a couple of years ago on Temple Walk uh, down the road. Uh, but that is not evidence of centrally administered prices which simply show um, ratios between certain goods for redistribution. That, that shows intervention in a market economy. Uh, that's the problem with the evidence. Polani and, and Finley, A, didn't know anything about economics. B, they systematically misinterpreted the evidence that they found. Uh, if you simply apply common sense, you can say, yes, these were market economies. But, but of course, they were not libertarian market economies. And merchants uh, had very low status. And um, you're right, it's all the Renaissance. Certainly, for the Enlightenment, uh, merchants were not very highly regarded. But they were the people who created the wealth which was stolen by the ruling classes and wasted. Paul? Yes. Uh, I, I would like to address this question. Paul? Michael? Yes. To uh, Tom, uh, perhaps you can answer this. Uh, this is a uh, a matter that interests me about what public choice theorists consider to be rational choice. Uh, this is, well, what is the epistemological assumption here? Is it whatever we do as, 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 as a political choice is by definition rational? Therefore, if uh, I decide I'm not going to vote for a white or black person, that's a rational choice because it's one that satisfies the need or interest that I'm expressing by voting. Or is the rationality rather than imperative that I should when I vote, I should think in a rational, utilitarian fashion? Um, have we achieved the rationality in terms of the way people vote? Or is it some goal, some moral goal that the voters strive to achieve? Well, on this, on the literature, well, there's different segments of this literature. There's a, there's a, a the Virginia School of Public Choice, which is associated with Buchanan and Tullock and their students and followers. Then there's a, a University of Rochester School of Public Choice that is mathematical and political science, basically. So you probably get different answers to a question like that, whether depending on whether you went to the University of Rochester or uh, George Mason today, where Buchanan still hangs his head every once in a while. But it, it was always, uh, you know, when I was their student, it was always an attempt at uh, positive economics. It was always an attempt to, to explain uh, reality, to explain the choices that people actually made. It was always a, a theme of all. everything that was being done there. And, but, but others, I think some of the others uh, have taken different approaches. So it's sort of a, a pretty broad-based school. And, and the, two, the two schools don't talk to each other much. But the mathematical politicians in Rochester barely communicate with the other ones, even though they both publish in the same journal. So you have articles in the same journal that one group of this, uh, these specialists can't read what the other group uh, writes. Yuri. Well, uh, I completely agree with Tom about public choice and, and errors. Uh, however, I think there is something in, in this institution of different governments, because people really go to the theater, they're moving around, looking for better schools or better this or lower taxes or like in my case uh, uh, more exile taking uh, 
that, that still, and you, you mentioned that in Minneapolis there's 63 municipalities or something like that, and, um, and New Orleans only 20, I'm sure I would put it in Minneapolis, uh, New Orleans, because I think more choices have. Uh, so there's still people, what do you think? Because if we will have, for example, a Kenyan Bolshevik as, as our president, then it's, uh, I think I will show it up for so government, I believe there's some some market structure kind of doesn't make sense. Well, yeah, that, that, I wasn't criticizing federalism uh, or uh, uh, you know street, more choices and more escape routes. It's, it's better than having fewer escape routes. But I was, I was criticizing a particular type of literature that that said uh, we're going to take this industrial organization literature that says many firms good idea and transplant it on the study of politics without really uh, understanding what it is that underlies these data on numbers of jurisdictions. And like I said, the historical analysis that I did of local governments in America and uh, uh, how they came to be was that many of these were not really jurisdictions that gave you a choice of schools to send your children. They were just, uh, they came about uh, because taxpayers revolted over over something and the government set up an off-budget enterprise to sort of thumb its nose at the taxpayers and say we're going to find a way to tax you anyway. And they would finance these things with revenue bonds which are, uh, are not uh, backed by tax revenues uh, explicitly but supposedly by the revenues that they raised by selling something or uh, renting out housing or something like that. But they always eventually uh, subsidize these entities with tax dollars anyway. And so I was uh, I was criticizing that the method of analysis that's in the literature of just transplanting the theory of the firms to study of policy, but I wasn't critiquing uh, voting with your feet in general and all, all of that. Yeah, yeah I wanted to ask a uh, developed question. Uh, and, and just to say before I go into time, I mean, I do appreciate your talk. Uh, uh, one of the criticisms that you didn't deal with was this notion of having prices that are from zero is that to indicate that whether you have a lot of inflation or deflation, the variance in the changes in the prices seem to be greater uh, than if you're too close to zero. And the problem that creates is that uh, firms or workers or others have a harder often for the empirical evidence to indicate that whether you have a lot of inflation or deflation, the variance in the changes in the prices seem to be greater uh, than if you're too close to your zero. And the problem that creates is that uh, firms or workers or others have a harder time distinguishing whether there's a change in the real demand for their individual product as opposed to some overall change that's occurring in the price level. And that people are more likely to make mistakes. If I have a drop that occurs in uh, in the wages for the worker, he has to figure out, is it just in this one particular plant that my wages are dropping, or is it something that's occurring in general across any possible job that I do? <coughs> when they make mistakes about that, they may quit jobs too quickly or, or take jobs faster than they're supposed to, and you have similar problems that everybody says for firms. So if the overall price level is zero, you know, surely there can be issues about how 
even whatever prices there are work their way through, but if I get an increase in demand of 10% in the price of my product, I'm more likely to interpret that as a real increase in the demand for my product. Whereas if I have inflation that's 50% or inflation that's 20% and I'm having this big variance from time to time, there's also going to be a lot more effort by these firms and workers trying to figure out just resources spent trying to figure out why prices are changing, you know, or, or whether it is an increase in demand or, or something that's happening in general. Philip and maybe uh, Nikolai also. Well, thank, thank you for your question. Um, well, first of all, we, have, we would have to look why why is there such a big inflation uh, on the free market there normally would be only low and regular rates of inflation, low and regular rates of inflation of private of, of falling prices, three three percent, five percent. So this would not be a very huge huge amount and not I don't see why the bar variance would be higher than it is now with our monetary policy. And the, the other point is that uh, for a company, important is the difference between the buying, buying costs and uh, selling proceeds. So if my buying costs fall 20% uh, and my selling proceeds fall 10%, I, I know that uh, my, my real profits are increasing and uh, there's, no, there's basically no, no, I don't see the confusion that would arise from, from those with this information, this clear information that I can interpret, interpret uh, very easily.
general, the changes in general tendencies and particular prices is true not only for would be true also for any environment, right? But even with a stable uh, general price level, you can have a lot of uh, change in relative prices. So an entrepreneur can perfectly also make a mistake in this environment. Sure. No, so what, how is this different than with the deflation rate? Okay. Yes. But the, uh, first of all, I don't think there is a distinction the argument I was making between inflation or deflation. The distinction I was making between having uh, an overall inflation rate of zero versus one that's 10% or minus 10%. And I mean, maybe we can ask some business people that we have here. But my guess is, is that the overall inflation rate zeroes, and they see a change in the prices, it's going to be much easier for them to realize that it's a real change in demand for their product. If, it's, if the inflation rate is 10%, and sometimes on average, and sometimes it's 5%, and sometimes it's 15%, it's going to be harder for them to, to see. I mean, they, you're talking about expectations. Well, first of all, expectations mean can mean they're right on average. It doesn't mean that they're right every particular time. And it's just, and my guess is companies just have a hard time figuring out what the changes are that are there. How, how, why do you think it's so easy for them to be able to determine when there's a change in price, when I'm having this variable inflation, let's say, or variable deflation? But, but these difficulties will be true even for a stable price level mm -hmm. advantage. Well, what I agree with you is that uh, if you have uh, continuous higher inflation, of course, economic calculation is disturbed. Uh, with this argument, I may agree to a certain extent. But otherwise, uh, the problem of economic calculation for an entrepreneur is a general problem that applies in any environment. Some, some buffer zone in order not to come to this 
the area of falling prices. Does it answer your question? Can I just say something? Then again, it's just a question of definition. Uh, once you can define it that way, uh, you are okay. The important thing with definitions is to have definitions that allow you to take into account the important social phenomena. And the important distinction here is the deflation, inflation, and the study of political actions. Obviously, the distinction between the free market and voluntary actions and government intervention. As far as your distinction, your definition allows for this distinction takes into account these distinctions. I think you're okay. Any other question?